matter where I go, people secretly and sometimes openly want to know how I can afford to travel year round. While I've spent over a decade traveling, I'm not even at the halfway point of seeing all 195 countries. However, there are quite a bit of people who have visited every country in the world. I plan to talk to all of them, asking them the sacrifices they've made to see every country, what were their favorites and least favorites, their craziest experiences, tips on how we can travel more, and yes, how they can afford to travel nonstop. I'm Kevin Liu, the host of the Pick My Adventure show, and I'm glad you're ready to hear what it takes to be one of the world's most traveled. Welcome Graham Hughes to the show today. Graham, thank you very much for joining us. Graham traveled to every country in the world and he did it by never setting foot on a plane. And his achievement is accredited by the Guinness Book of World Records. Graham, I want to ask you, first of all, uh, how exactly did you get in contact with the Guinness Book of World Records? How'd you come up with this idea? Okay, um, first thing, so I came up with the idea while I was traveling in South America back in 2002. I was sitting on top of a train in Ecuador and I had my Lonely Planet guidebook and I was making a list of all the countries I'd been to up to that point. I was about 23 years old at the time and uh, I realized I'd been to like 70 countries, a lot of them in Europe because they're all really close together and tiny little places like San Marino and Mar Monaco and Andorra and stuff. But um, yeah, I thought, wow, that, that that's really cool. And also at that time, I'd been traveling on the round the world ticket, but I've been flying into a region and then traveling around that region overland. And I just really, really enjoyed the experience. And when I got home, I decided to look up whether anyone had, obviously people have been to every country in the world, but I wanted to know if anyone had done it without flying. And it turned out that no one had. And I was quite inspired as well by uh, Michael Palin from Monty Python, who had a show in the UK called Around the World in 80 Days, in which he had to travel around the world without flying. And it was just exciting. It was like the old, old school travel. And I'm not a big fan of hotels. I'm not a big fan of planes and airports, to be honest with you. Waiting waiting in, in line is not my idea of a, of a good time. Um, so, yeah, so I took this idea to a couple of newspapers in the UK, hoping to write a, a sort of a travel blog. Not that they really existed back then, but um, this idea that, you know, I've, I've given a, a, a weekly update of how I was getting on. And they said, no, it's too dangerous. <laughs> You'll die. <laughs> Don't do it. Um, and then eventually I took it to Lonely Planet uh, in Australia. And they said, how do you think you can do this? And I said, because I've read all your books. And in your books, it says that this is possible by putting everything together. And I showed them this sort of 30-page dossier that I had of how to get from one country to the next without flying. And so then it was over to Guinness World Records uh, to get in touch with them and say, uh, you know, first of all, has anyone ever set this record? Secondly, if I do want to set this record, what are the rules? Um, and um, then thirdly, like how fast do I have to do it for it to be a record? So they uh, they agreed it could be a new record. They also had extra rules in there as well, which is like I wasn't allowed to drive myself in a car and I wasn't allowed to hitchhike in case I bribed the driver to drive faster. This journey took me four years. I mean, it would make absolutely no difference whatsoever <laughs> to, the, to the amount of time that it took. But that was also a good thing. It's because no one had done it before. It took as long as it took. So um, after the first year, when I was really racing around like crazy, uh, I uh, slowed down a bit and got to smell smell the flowers, as Ferris Bueller once suggested would be a good thing to do. 
Sure. So I grew up reading the Guinness Book of World Records. As a kid, you know, we always loved every new edition because we'd go in and look at all the new records or anything that that uh, was accomplished that year or something very unique. A lot of the rules that they laid out seemed a little bit arbitrary. I mean, it wasn't like there was somebody else who did this, but he he or she did it via, you know, only getting on a single plane jet or uh, a single engine jet or just going by boat or something like that. Uh, all of these rules that they laid out, how did they? How did you guys come to this, this conclusion that you couldn't drive your own vehicle or you couldn't get on a motorcycle? That, that was Guinness. Guinness just said to me, you can't do this. And I'm like, why not? And the reasoning is that I could conceivably bribe a driver or drive myself too fast on a, on a national road. And they can't condone any um, illegality in people setting Guinness World Records. You can't say, I did this thing. If it turns out what you did was illegal, <laughs> you're not getting in the Guinness Book of Records. And so that was their reasoning. However, there were a couple of things at this festival. Uh, when I was in Nigeria, I was actually trying to bribe the driver to slow down and get onto the correct side of the freeway. Um, and in the in the minibus I was in, which they call Maulers, it was like something from Mad Max. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> these like burnt out tankers at the side of the road. I'm like, oh my god, will you please slow down and get on the right side of the road. And uh, the other thing was, at the end of the journey, I got into trouble when I submitted all my evidence to Guinness. They said, hang on, how did you get into Russia? And I said, oh, I just waded across the River Narva on the border between Estonia and Russia because I couldn't be bothered getting a Russia visa because it's like 150 quid. <laughs> I could pay that to, to go and visit Russia. Uh, and uh, they said, oh, we're not going to accept it then. So luckily, I had overlanded it for my last country, which was South Sudan, which wasn't a country when I started traveling. It became a country while I was traveling. And uh, yeah, I, I, luckily I'd overlanded it back to the UK from there. So I could continue the journey and I got on a coach over to Kaliningrad in uh, in Russia with, with a visa and they accepted that. Sure. So what is the evidence that you have to submit? And I'd imagine keeping all of this in this journey is probably a backpack full of paperwork right I, yeah well, well no you got you got your passport which got all your stamps in just get as many stamps as you can um also i had photographic evidence and also i, I filmed myself like every day of the journey uh, crossing over these borders and, and talking to people in the countries and stuff like that and also i had a little gps logger um this is before smartphones by the way no one had a smartphone when i was traveling so it just made it a little bit more difficult imagine getting around the world without google maps on your phone yeah, sure. that was that's what I had to do. <laughs> Kids these days, <laughs> but a ton of SIM cards, also, right? Yes, I, mean... I had two. I had two little Nokia eight one two threes, and I'd have one with my British SIM card in in emergencies, and one with uh, the local SIM card. So every time I crossed the border, I had to get a new SIM card, uh, which yeah. was a bit of a nightmare. But so... uh, yeah, I had a little tagger GPS tagger that took my position every fifteen seconds, so I could say yeah. was actually where it was. So... Uh, it's it's so incredible, and I have so many questions about it, but had it always been a, a dream of yours to be in the Guinness Book of Rec World Records or to do something that no one else had? Is this how... Yes. Like, <laughs> I, okay. um, I love the idea of setting new records that no one's done before for a couple of reasons. So, I mean, look, I'm not athletic in any way, shape, or form. I'm not that great at anything in particular. One of the great things about this journey was that it allowed me just to chill out and have a good time while I was traveling, um, meet the locals. I couch surfed everywhere. I kept costs down by you know, taking local transport, eating street food, 
Um, and that that was that was great. And yeah, I, I just tried to focus on proving that it could be done rather than doing it in necessarily the fastest time possible. But uh, I do have the Guinness World Record for the most countries visited in one year without flying, which is 133. If anyone watching this wants to beat that record, it's kind of easy. Just ignore the islands. Just don't go to any little far-flung islands like Comoros or Cape Verde because you might get stuck there for six weeks. Sure. So, okay. Uh, also, you had mentioned um, Ferris Bueller <laughs> earlier, which is a great movie, obviously. <laughs> uh, I love it. In Ferris Bueller, he, of course... There's so many iconic moments, the baseball game, the, the, the fair where he starts singing. So in, in your journey, what were the highlights that you experienced uh, throughout this? Oh, wow. Oh, so many. Um, it, I saw one of the last space shuttles taking off from the causeway in, in Florida, um, which was just in Cape Canaveral. That was, that was incredible. I... Um, I, I I was in Papua New Guinea and I was on a on a on a sh on a on a ferry boat in Papua New Guinea, and it was a there was a blanket of stars above us and in, in, over to the right it was nighttime and over to the right there was a thunderstorm a lightning storm going on at the mouth of the Sepik River and on the left there was a, a little island that was just in the shape of, of, of a you know a cartoon volcano uh, with lava <laughs> glowing at the top of it and it's just magical moments like that. And um, on the way back from South Sudan to the UK, I might have stopped off at the pyramids along the way. And uh, me and a few friends decided that we might try and get to the top of the Great Pyramid, which probably wasn't the best of ideas. Because if you get caught, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit naughty. Um, but uh, we managed to do that, which was a lifelong dream of mine. Uh, we went in the middle of the night. Strangely enough, there's no one actually guarding the Great Pyramids of Giza, the last of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. But, uh, you know... Who am I to tell the Egyptians how to look after their ancient antiquities? You, you used to be able to get to the top before the 90s, and then people fell and tried to sue the, the Egyptian government. So the Egyptians were just like, no, can't climb it anymore. Sure. Well, uh, so let me ask you, you were actually well-traveled before this journey even started, right? I think you'd mentioned 70 yeah. countries? Before yeah, something like that, yeah. So when you do 133 countries in one year, do you have, is it just a one day stopover? I mean, it, I, I believe you had to set foot actually in each, yeah. each country, yeah. but did you have time to enjoy it? Did you take time um, to have a it, drink it, in the pub? The, 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 my philosophy was it takes as long as it takes. And there were a few countries like Panama, for example, in which I literally just stepped over the border, just went over the border, got a picture of myself at the welcome to Panama sign, got a stamp in my passport, walked back out. Um, there were about 20 countries that I did that in, but then there was 180 countries where I actually spent a, a day more in each place. Um, one of the reasons why that rule was put in by Guinness and by myself, we, we negotiated about that, because at first they did want me to spend at least a, a certain amount of time in each country, uh, maybe like an overnight stay. And I said, well, first of all, it's going to be difficult in somewhere like Vatican City. How do you stay, stay the night in Vatican City um, unless you're a priest? <laughs> and the other thing is... I. I at the time, I mean, I was really lucky, really crazy lucky with my timing of this because started in 2009, I'd done the bulk of the countries by the end of 2010, and I only had the Pacific Island nations and, and some Indian Island nations to visit by the end of 2010. And in that period, we had a like kind of an unprecedented length of peace on the planet. There was only one country 
one country on the Foreign and Commonwealth Officers website, which I assume that's the same as your Homeland Security or something website, which tells you where you are and aren't allowed to go. And if there's a country that says you can't go there because it's too dangerous, you can't get insurance to go to that country. And it was Somalia. And that was it. And the the other countries that I went to that were, you know, obviously things were happening at the time, like Iraq, Afghanistan. They, it wasn't the whole country that was covered by the FCO warning. It said, you know, you should be okay if you stay in the, the Kurdistan region of Iraq, if you stay, you know, in the north of uh, Afghanistan, but do not travel to this particular area. Um, so I, I was I was lucky in that respect. But we had in the back of our minds when we were setting out the rules for this, we had, well, what happens in the future if there's a war in Yemen, in Syria, in Libya, in Sudan, in Ukraine, um, the idea would be that we don't want people to put their lives in danger spending the night in a war zone to set a Guinness World Record because obviously they want it to be a fun thing for people to try and do, not something that they die trying to do. Sure. Well, so you uh, you said you presented before this even became uh, a thing, you presented uh, a dossier of, 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 of just research that you had had done in terms of getting to each and every country and how you could actually do it. Right. So you did extensive research. You also mentioned that you stayed in, uh, couch surfing sites. And at this point, uh, there, you probably are not going around everywhere and there's going to be, uh, uh, great access to internet. So did you have everything, how far did you have everything planned out along the way? Like, would you, be planning from the the previous country to the next country still planning or you had everything kind of laid out uh a little bit of both um a lot of times plan a didn't work out so i had to think of plan b on the spot or plan c or plan d like i said i was tremendously lucky on a lot of things no country stopped me from going in which was a big thing obviously if one country had said you're not coming in then i couldn't have done the record i didn't get ill while I was traveling, whole four years, didn't get ill, didn't have a day off sick, had all my vaccinations before I left because, you know, didn't want to, I, I, you know, I didn't want to die and I didn't want to give anyone else a deadly disease. <laughs> so people who go to these far, far, far fun places and don't take the malaria tablets and don't get vaccinated, I think. It's just... Well, did you ever fear for your life? Were there situations where you felt uh, very scared? Uh, not really. Um, I was locked up in Cape Verde Islands. I mean, the journey there was pretty hairy. We were on a 40 foot wooden outboard canoe <laughs> with, with, with just a little bit of tarp at one end to, to, to you could sleep under. Um, and I was with 10 Senegalese fishermen. And you know what? I'm stupid. If I'd been smarter, I would have been more scared. I was just too stupid to be scared because I didn't know. I'd never seen the movie A Perfect Storm with George Clooney. If I'd seen that movie, no way would I've gotten that boat. Absolutely no way whatsoever. <laughs> um, and then when I got there, when I was in uh, Cape Verde, I was held uh, with the fishermen in uh, a cell under a police station for six days. And the same thing happened to me in, in Congo. I was held for six days in Congo. And in both times, I was just too angry to be scared. <laughs> I was just like, so I was just like raging. Like, why have you put me in jail? What have I done? What have I... <laughs> so, um, yeah. And, and I, I think also... One of the things that this, I mean, we'll talk about this later, I think, but, you know, one of the things this journey gave me was I sort of reaffirmed my faith in humanity. It made me realize you can't judge countries by the actions of their governments. God knows, I don't want anyone to judge my country by the actions of our government over the last few years. And uh, also that most people are nice. 
most people are just really generous and kind and just want the best for everyone and they'll see a stranger and help help them out so um in that respect i, I knew that in a way that um a lot of the locals would probably stop me from walking into danger if i was if i was just walking down the wrong path or whatever people, someone would usually st- step in um but uh no, I was, like i say i was i was just really really fortunate i didn't really have any apart from those run-ins with the police i didn't run into any sort of nerdwells who, who meant me harm and, and and i think also part of that it's sort of the way we look at the world is very much um colored by the media that we consume and obviously Look, you know, you're a journalist, you know, you know that you're not going to write a story of like, nothing particularly bad happened in Burkina Faso today. That's not a news story. But if there's a coup or an earthquake or a flood or a volcano explodes or there's a nuclear meltdown, it's all over the newspapers. And then we associate that country with that thing that happened in that country. And it might have happened years ago. And yet people go, oh, don't go there, it's dangerous. That thing happened, you know, in the mid 90s. <sighs> Yeah. So, um, but actually going to these places, you realize that now that, that you, you, we do get a bit of a slanted view of the world just because of the, the media that we consume. And this isn't a dig at the media, by the way. Um, if we want to do that, we can do that later. But um, it's just, it's just, it's just the nature of news, isn't it? It's just bad news. You know, it's got around the world before, you know, any good news has even got out, out of bed. It's tough. I mean, uh, as a former news reporter in the U.S., I oftentimes tell people that we have a country of 330 million. So if any other country's news is going to crack our airwaves, it has to be something very bad because mm, yeah. otherwise we have enough bad stories in the U S that it's <laughs> to cover for an hour. I mean, even a 30 minute newscast. I mean, can you imagine trying to fit in everything that happens in the U S in 30 minutes? Yeah. Uh, but so with saying that, you know, we have like uh it's people get a jaded sense of view of what happens in the rest of the world. Um, but also as a journalist, a lot of journalists that I talk to, we would love to cover positive news, but it just doesn't attract viewers as a negative story does as the shooting does. And there's no. a, a common saying in every newsroom that goes, if it bleeds, it leads, yeah. which means yeah. that, you know, if there's any kind of blood, like it's leading the newscast. And yeah. tune into that because they, they want to know. They want to know if it's going to affect them as opposed to somebody who's feeding yeah. a thousand people at the nearby uh, homeless camp. Um, that, that also feeds into travel as well because you could have a million people go and visit India in one given year. If one of those tourists is killed, mm. that's all over the news. Not the million who went over there, had a great time, you know, ate some yeah. great food, met some great people, came home, talked about it incessantly. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's it's very true. I mean, it's just the same as anybody who who goes to a restaurant and leaves that bad review, or you know, you, you talk to somebody. And so I actually guard what I say when I travel to countries. If I have a bad experience, a lot of times I try to, if I even talk about it, I'll put it into context because I remember somebody a long time ago was telling me that oh, they went to Brazil and everyone there is racist, and for a number of years. I would, I thought that, and I even like, I even regurgitated that to people. I was like, oh, I heard people there are racist. You know what I mean? It's just one yeah. of those things. I can't think of how many people probably thought that and maybe told it to somebody else. You know, it's so I yeah. really carefully guard what I say because I know my experience could have just been, you know, a, a microcosm of, of, of the entire country. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. 
yeah. I, I met a couple of travel bloggers when I was in New Zealand and they'd won a travel blogging award that year. I knew just a couple who traveled around the world and we were discussing our experiences. And obviously one of the questions that comes up is what were your faves? You know, what was the, what was the best? What was the worst? And I said, one of my favorite was Bolivia. I just absolutely love Bolivia. I've traveled all over Bolivia and it's just the land that health and safety forgot. And uh, yeah, they, they were like, oh, that's one of our worst. We, we had a terrible time there. And it was because they had someone who joined them on the journey who they were trying to shake off. <laughs> and, uh, and also they lost their passports on the first day. They got robbed and then they just left. And it was like their whole experience of that country was just overwhelmingly negative. And that's yeah. the way they look at that country now, unfortunately. Whereas for me, <laughs> I just had a great time there. So uh, yeah. looking back, I just think uh, it, it's travel is tremendously subjective. And not only that, I mean, if they are, are travel bloggers or influencers, they probably have a legion of, of followers who are listening to what they're saying and they're thinking, I'm never going to Bolivia. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but let me ask you, sure. I mean, so you completed your journey uh, in, in 2013, was it? Yeah, January 2013. 2013. So since then, you we've seen the advent of the uh, uh, travel influencer. The yes. You, you know, the in Instagram, the person who goes to a location and takes a beautiful picture in Mykonos and has the flowing dress or, you know, those iconic pictures. I'm curious yes. to uh, what we think about how travel has changed and, and how travel is documented uh, for the masses or for people's friends. Uh, what, what do you think? I, I wish I had done that. Well, I made a TV show for Lonely Planet called Lonely Planet's The Odyssey that's been shown on the Travel Channel in the US and National Geographic Adventure Channel when it was broadcasting around the world. So I had like an eight-part series that was all mostly self-filmed and me presenting it. So I got to do that kind of. But looking back, I, you know, I wanted to do a YouTube series once a week, having an update of how I was doing on YouTube. That, that's the way I envisage it. And that's the way that I pitched it to Lonely Planet, by the way. They were the ones who wanted to do the TV show. And... When someone says, do you want to do a TV show? It's like, you know, being asked, are you a god? You say yes. You just, it's like being asked, do you want to do a TED talk? You go, yes. <laughs> it's just like there's no, there's going to be no argument about it, even if they're not going to pay for your flight of accommodation. But anyway, that's getting off the point. <laughs> the, the, uh, yeah. I, I feel like um, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the sort of the way that people travel is entirely up to them. And I get a little bit, I bristle a little bit when people who haven't traveled as extensively as I perhaps start going on about how someone who went somewhere didn't see the real Crete. They didn't see the real Gabon <laughs> or whatever country, insert country here. And everyone does it in their own way. Everyone travels in their own way. I like traveling. I like actually the motion of getting somewhere. I don't like flying. Well, I do like flying, actually. That's a bit of a lie. I do like flying. I just hate airports. I hate queuing up with a heavy backpack on my back, sweating in a queue to, you know, have my genitals photographed by a stranger. It's just not fun. It's the opposite of fun. And I don't like hotels because I find them really impersonal. Uh, if you stay at a backpackers, if you stay with other people, Airbnb or couch surfing, you're going to have a better time than you are anywhere in the world staying in a hotel. So that's just my take on it. But if someone else wants to fly somewhere and sit on a beach for two weeks, that's their prerogative. They're, are you having a good time? That's all I care about. Are they having a good time? And so I'm not, I'm not a travel snob and I get a bit annoyed with travel snobs. If someone wants to go around the world and take beautiful pictures of themselves on beaches, <laughs> great. <laughs> you know, as long as they're enjoying themselves and they're encouraging other people 
to travel, to go see the world. And I think that's my main thing. I, I'd love everyone to travel, preferably in the most environmentally friendly way possible. But I'd love people to travel more because, as I think Mark Twain said, uh, that travel is is fatal to prejudice, which I think it really is. It's very hard to be a racist, small-minded, xenophobic, homophobic, transphobic bigot when you've traveled as much as I have. That's very well said. Uh, so I, kind of getting back to what we were talking a little bit about the, the best experiences. You mentioned Bolivia. Uh, and well, one thing that <laughs> all travelers get that have traveled extensively is what's your favorite country? So is, is Bolivia yeah. your favorite country? And if so, like, why oh, would you say no. My, my favorite country changes with, with my mood. Um, it's like asking me my favorite record. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. It changes each day. It depends what the weather's like. I love Bolivia. I love Thailand. I love Egypt. Um, I love Nepal. Um, there's loads of countries in Europe that are just amazing. It's hard to say. It, it, it's really just like if I had a map of the world, I'd be quite happy to f- throw a dart at it and go back to that country. Even the ones that locked me up, I'll go back there because there's something good about it. There's something cool. There's something I'd like to see that I might not have seen on my journey. So one of the things, um, I mean, I did see do some touristy things. Like I went to the Great Wall of China while I was in China. But there were a few things that I didn't want to do because I was on my own. And I, I wanted to tr- experience it with somebody else. So this is a, a whole part of solo travel. I, I traveled on my own. I had a camera operator follow me around for a few weeks of the first year, but it was never, it wasn't the whole time. And um, yeah, that that experience, it was very enjoyable. It made made a lot of new friends because obviously when you're traveling alone, you're never alone for long. You always end up chatting with people, especially on buses and trains and ferry boats. Um, But yeah, I I felt like, um, you know, a lot of these places when you say, oh, you just stepped foot in Panama. I just say, well, I could always go back. And I did. I went back. I lived in Panama for three years subsequently after stepping over it in, in the Odyssey expedition, which is the name of my, my travels. Um, and, I, and yeah, that's a, that was my attitude. I thought, well, these countries aren't going anywhere. Well, some are in the South Pacific, but I did manage to spend a bit of time in the South Pacific. But uh, yeah, they're going underwater. Thanks, global warming. Um, but yeah, the, most of the countries in the world aren't going anywhere. And I'm hoping to be able to go back to a lot of these places later in life, maybe take my own kids there or partners or partner, should say. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's always there. I never saw it as like, this is the only time I'm going to travel to these places. So I've got to make the most of it. I always thought, well, you know, if it's good enough, I'll go back. Madagascar, what a great country. Mad- I'll go back to Madagascar at the drop of a hat. Incredible place. And everyone wears hats. <laughs> what was it about Madagascar that uh, that you enjoyed so much? Oh, it's just beautiful. It's just a beautiful country. It's a little bit of Africa. It's a little bit of Southeast Asia, South Asia, the Middle East, even Europe. Um, it, it's it's just this amazing. You know the way fusion cooking is really good. Yeah. Well, Madagascar is like fuse, a fusion country uh, mm-hmm. with people, travelers from all over the world who who came to live in Madagascar. And it just had a really nice vibe about it. I just, I just had a really good time in Madagascar. Plus, they've got lemurs, which are arguably the cutest animals in the world ever. Yeah, no, very nice. <laughs> well, so what would you say is your style of travel? Like, would you go into a country and city with everything planned out? Or would you land and just kind of figure out your itinerary as you go? Was it open-ended? Uh, oh, what would you- that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, I would... I would work out probably on the way there. So, you know, this isn't like months in advance, but on the way there, I'd work out 
what I'd like to do while I'm there. But also, I made a point of trying to look up the local rules and regulations and just the local culture in each place that I was going to. Um, one, so I knew, because it's a bit rude going to someone else's country and not knowing anything about the place. Uh, but also, like, I didn't want to get arrested <laughs> for, yeah. for drinking water on the Dubai train or, you know, whatever crazy law that they've got (laughs) eating a kinder surprise egg in america or a haggis yes or blue cheese (laughs) are you eating blue cheese sir yeah yeah i am (laughs) so i'd imagine you're a very adventurous eater then having traveled to all these countries and probably not having access to local cuisine from liverpool are you are you are you pretty Uh, yeah yeah I'm, I, I will eat anything. I'll give anything a go once. Yeah. Uh, the worst thing I've ever eaten, because I feel like this question's coming. <laughs> I was in yeah. the Philippines, and I ate something called balut. You can look it up. B-A-L-U-T. It's yep. hard-boiled fertilized duck egg. So imagine like an egg. <laughs> There's like a little duck fetus in the egg, and they sell it as like a roadside snack to have. And it tastes as disgusting as it sounds. And yeah. Pretty horrific. Pretty horrific. Not doing that one again. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually tried that as well. I, I lasted a bite. Uh, I, I wouldn't yeah. say it was disgusting for me, but it, it just, it looks, Ooh. when you're biting into something that looks like a fetus, and, you know, it just, yeah, I, I just, wrong. that's the part I couldn't really deal with. You know, it was like, yeah. uh, you know, even today, I mean, I, I do eat meat, but I don't want it to resemble the animal right before I eat. <laughs> don't want it to have a face. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> One ignorant okay. how it gets to my plate. What's your life been like since you completed the journey? Did you take a break after for to travel? Were you exhausted? How did you feel after you com- finally completed all 193 countries or 201 uh, that that you you say as well? But what did you feel like after you completed this journey? It was it was kind of a crazy time in my life. Um, I finished the journey. I had this moment where I, because I had the big sort of homecoming back to Liverpool when I thought I'd finished the journey back in December of 2012. And then I got the message from Guinness saying, we're not going to accept your entry into Russia because you tried to, you raged across the river. That's not the way to get into Russia. Um, And I knew I had to go back. So I went back to like I said, I went back to Kaliningrad in Russia and uh, stayed the night there, actually, and then got back to Liverpool, uh, back to the UK on the coach. And then I was in London and I was on the underground. There was no one there to meet me. I was just on my own, sitting on the underground on all my scrubs with me backpack, just going, should I tell the people in the carriage I've just been to every country in the world when I'm flying? Um, but I had sort of a, a good run that year uh, in which I did, did, did a bunch of TED Talks. I spoke at the Telegraph Adventure uh, Conference, uh, Adventure Travel Conference. Um, I spoke at something called Thinking Digital, which was, you know, so doing a lot of the, the sort of talk talk circuit. I was invited to be on CBS News over in America and meet Dale, Gail King, which was cool. And oh. uh, yeah, so I was doing all that. So I was talking a lot about my adventure and all the things that had happened and telling stories and but by the summer i was i was getting restless again i'm not gonna lie kevin i was getting restless i was like want to go somewhere well go, 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 keep going um I, th- I think just like after a journey like that sort of going back to just the routine of life it's just a bit jarring <laughs> um so I, I, I haven't sort of worked out my land legs yet so i applied to be on a game show uh which was sponsored by samsung 
uh, called SOS Island. And there were 16 contestants from around the world. I, I applied and I had a, <laughs> on my application form, it started this thing like, in 500 characters or less, tell us why you should be a contestant on SOS Island. And, you know, <laughs> dickhead here, you're right. Google me, smiley face. <laughs> and they did. Um, and so I got a call off the production company and we, we were flown over to Puerto Rico uh, right. to... Uh, to uh, do this sort of survival survival camp with Les Stroud, who does Survivor Man on, uh, I think, Discovery, maybe. And, uh, yeah, so that, that that was good, and I won. And the prize was a private island. And, uh, yeah, so I won a private island in, in Panama, in the Caribbean, which, so you, which I went and lived on for three years. <laughs> so did the private island have uh, basic amenities? Like, did you have yeah. running water, toilet, and everything? Boat, yeah. Running wow. water, electricity. I mean, it was solar power. It was running water from rainwater, but it's 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 technical technically rainforest. It's in Bocas del Toro, so it's technically rainforest. We have like sure. three and a half meters of 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 rain a year. It's <laughs> just like an insane amount of rain. So we're never going to yeah. run out of water. We had loads of sun. Not going to run out of electricity. And I had speedboats that came with the island. And I was about ten kilometers from the main town and the airport uh, okay. in Bocas del Toro. And I just had the time of my life. It was brilliant. And because mm-hmm. I'd couch surfed around the world, I put my island up on couch surfing so people could come and stay with me on the island. So I was like this hermit, this weird yeah. hermit on an island with yeah. all these people from around the world coming to stay with me for, for, for a couple of nights. Sure, it was great. Fantastic. So, so you had to go anywhere. If you had to get uh, go to the grocery store or anything, you had to take your boat yes. over to the island and, and grab things. But yeah. Uh, so what about people who stayed at your, your place from Airbnb or couch surfing? Would you have to go pick them up? How would yeah. that work? Okay. Yeah. Well, they couldn't swim. Well, they could swim, I suppose. Yeah. It'd be very dangerous and they'll probably die. But uh, now, yeah. <laughs> uh, now I'd, be, I'd, I'd go pick people up. Uh, I had a couple of incidents where people didn't turn up. And I'd like, I'd like got across in the boat in, in like a, a storm. <laughs> I'd yeah. up soaking wet. And I'd be like, where are they? And then I had to put a thing in saying, basically, if you don't turn up, then I don't know what I could do. I couldn't do anything. If it's Airbnb, you can keep the money. But if it's uh, yeah. couch surfing, it's free. So you're just like, why are you? I'm going to give you a negative review. I am. But then they might give you a negative review and then no one will stay with you. So, yeah. <laughs> There's an, uh, an, indigenous guy, an indigenous guy living there with his family on the island. He takes care of the place for me. So no one else comes and decides to claim it for themselves. And uh, we have people going over on Airbnb. If you want to look it up yourself, it's called Ginger Island, spelt like ninja. So it's J-I-N-J-A, Ginger uh-huh. Island, and it's in Bocas del Toro. And it's only $80, $80, I think, and a night. It's dead cheap. Okay. Next that- door, there's a place next door on the next door island, which is like a multi-million dollar retreat, which is $1,800 a night. So wow. You want to stay on mine for the price of a backpackers. <laughs> for two people. Sure. Now, does that oh, include can... boat ride as well, or do they have, they have Yeah, yeah, yeah. That includes boat rides. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we throw that okay. in. Do you plan on doing anything in the future with the island? Maybe building a, yeah. a multi-million, multi-million, dollar? multi-million dollar eco retreat. That's what I'd like to do. If anyone's watching this, who'd like to invest? Yeah, <laughs> nice. I don't have the money to do that myself, but uh, sure. yeah, if, if someone wants to come on board, and I, I, you know, I have a dream. I have a, a, a dream about having an electric bus. That, that uh-huh. makes its way once a month down from San Francisco, picks people up uh-huh. and brings them through Central America, stops off at these historic sites along the way and then comes to Ginger Island and people stay on the island for 10 days and they uh-huh. live about living off grid and meditate and I don't know, uh, do That's- ayahuasca or something. And then, and then they go back up 
on the electric bus, the electric boogie bus. That'd yeah. Be cool. I wanted to ask you what you were doing before the this journey that took you across the entire world. I mean, did you have a day job? Did you quit it before you, you did this? Or were you floating around traveling at the time? Uh, what were you doing for money? Because that's what uh, people love to ask. All the I, time. I, I've always been floating around. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a, I've always been a freelancer. I, I, I graduated from university with a degree in history and politics. I didn't want to be a politician because they're evil. I didn't want to be a history teacher because they're boring. Uh, no offense to any politicians or history teachers watching this. I love you all. Um, but no, I, I'm, I, I'll just say I would find it boring. Um, maybe when I retire, I might become a history teacher because I have lots of wisdom to impart <laughs> by then. <laughs> uh, no, so I, I, I went into uh, video production. Uh, when I was in university, really exciting time to get into video production because now it's all just taken as granted that everyone has a cell phone that you can just film 4K in. Brilliant. Uh, back then, non-linear editing was brand new. Like no one could do that on a home PC before. Suddenly we were thrust into this world where you could film stuff digitally, put a perfect copy onto, almost perfect copy onto your computer and edit it and make, you know, when I was younger, I used to try and put videos together, like little films and things using VHS tapes. You're just pressing pause and play and hooking up two recorders to each other. And it was so inaccurate. It was just, and you'd get that sort of fuzzy thing between, <laughs> between the scenes. It was painful. So when I was in university, got really into digital filmmaking. And then when I left university, I decided this is what I want to go into. So I spent uh, the next few years in Liverpool, building up my relationships with other uh, content creators. Well, we call ourselves content creators. This is before YouTube. YouTube only came around in 2005. So this is before YouTube. But we were making low-budget music videos. We were making actors' show reels. We were making little short films. And, um, but I'd always, I always wanted to travel more in the summer of 1999. I traveled around the Middle East, went to Syria, went to Lebanon, Egypt, uh, Jordan, uh, Turkey. In uh, 2002, I got around the world ticket and just went to all these places, went to India, Nepal, Bangladesh, and then went to Southeast Asia, China, went to Australia, New Zealand, and then around South America and just traveled around, traveled around. And I absolutely loved it. And I wanted to find some way of combining the two um when i was in new zealand i went into i went to queenstown and did the nevis high wire jump the bungee jump and i filmed myself doing it and i put it on youtube back in 2006 i guess and lonely planet saw it and said can we buy the video off you to put on the lonely planet site and i'm like hell yeah cool you know at the time lonely planet was the biggest um travel book travel the na the biggest name in travel i just say uh this is before TripAdvisor. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, then I had this contact with Lonely Planet and I sent them a pitch video in which I said, in, in, filmed in my hometown of Liverpool on top of a building, uh, saying I would go to every country in the world without flying. This is the plan. And I sent it over to them and they said, oh, it's, thank you. Thanks. It's always nice to hear from our contributors. <laughs> Bye. And then a couple of days later, I got a phone call saying, could you come in? Uh, could, could we set up a meeting with the head of development at Lonely Planet TV? And I was like, yes, yes. And I happened to be in Australia at the time. I know that sounds like a bit jammy, but I had sort of timed it so that I sent this 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 promo to them just at the time that I knew it was going to be in Australia. So uh, I went over to the uh, the old uh, HQ, the, the Lonely Planet HQ, which sadly sadly closed down a couple of days ago, uh, a couple of years ago. But uh, yeah, and they, they, they loved the idea and said, yeah, go ahead and do it. And I was like, yes, <laughs> off I go. So it, it got to combine my love of filming stuff, of presenting, and also uh, being able to travel to all these new places and meet people.
Yeah, so I, I think that you were the original uh, influencer, I would say, because you were <laughs> able to parlay that. I mean, because nowadays you see a lot of these Instagram influencers who are paying for all of their travels because, you know, they get sponsored stay in these luxurious hotels or, yeah. you know, get paid to yeah, go. Yeah, I should have done that. I should have done know? that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you active on Instagram? Are you active on TikTok? No. Uh, TikTok, I'm doing political stuff now, so it's not really to do with travel. Although I would like, it's it's just time, basically. I've got I've got like hundreds of hours of footage of every country in the world. Do you know what I mean? Of like that my my travels that no one's ever seen. Uh, the TV show was only the first year. I traveled for four years, and mm -hmm. yeah, it's just having the time to do it because you've got to build up your audience, and obviously that takes a long time. And yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I there's some mistakes that I made back in. Back in the day, I, I probably could have done things better than I did them. If I had the chance to do it again, I would just do it as, as, a, as an online thing. I wouldn't do it as a TV show. Um, mm -hmm. Not that I had a problem with the TV show in that respect. It was just that that would be a better way of getting a bigger audience and getting people behind it, behind yeah. the project. But I did, I did it on a shoestring. I mean, my budget for the year was about seven, seven thousand, eight thousand pounds for the year, so about ten thousand dollars for each year that I traveled and that had to cover my travel, my food, my accommodation, uh, my visas, uh, everything. So, um, yeah, I, I, I kept, I kept my costs down as best I could. Although, you know, I, some of the places I stayed at in couch surfing, I mean, I, I might be staying in a shack. I might be staying in a, in a, in a hammock outside the shack in Belize. And then I, sure. I might be staying in a penthouse apartment in Cote d'Ivoire. <laughs> Just coming Oh my God, <laughs> how did I get here <laughs> in a four poster bed? With a view over the harbor. <laughs> well, thinking about the hammock outside, I mean, uh, for me, mosquitoes are my my number one enemy anytime I travel. I mean, were you getting bit up left and right if you're staying in you know humble accommodations like that? Uh, I'm I I don't get bitten so much. You're gonna hate oh. me now. I don't get bitten so much by mosquitoes. I'm so sorry. They just don't. Uh, that if, I if they've got a choice between me and someone else, they generally go for someone else. I do yeah. get bitten now and again, but I mean, you know, the mosquito net. And I also took my anti-malarials when I was in a malaria, malarious area. Yeah. I would, uh, I would take me pills every day. Um, yeah. Which, you know, and everyone has different experiences. Some people take the anti-malaria pills, and they, they have, depending on what they are, they can have terrible side effects to them. Mm -hmm. um, which is why I'm quite excited when I read about the new vaccine that's come out for malaria, which I never thought would happen because it's not a virus, is it? It's a parasite. Mm -hmm. um so that that is very exciting news um not, not necessarily for me because you know i live in the uk now we don't have malaria but for people in the global south who this is the most you know deadly disease out there at the moment um it's, yeah. it's fantastic news yeah no yeah, i don't get, i don't get bitten too much i had some i had some sort of good luck on the journey but also i've got i've got some certain attributes that are, you know no good to anyone really except for myself what well, my greatest sort of x-men like powers is i can sleep anywhere I can sleep in the middle of a death metal gig in Norway. Um, and and that, that's not going to help the X-Men in any way, shape, or form. It's like, quick, use your superpowers. And I just fall asleep. Yeah. Magneto takes over the world. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, as, as far as traveling goes, if you can sleep anywhere, it's, it's, it's a very useful attribute to have a skill. It's it not is. a skill, is it? Is it a skill? I don't know. I think really <laughs> it is, actually. I mean, I think the, the fact that, that, that you can do that is amazing because for me, I'm a little bit high maintenance in some of my travels because I need air conditioning. Otherwise I can't sleep if I'm hot and I'm sweating. I'm already run hot anyway. So if I don't have air conditioning or a fan blowing on me, I won't be able to sleep. 
And on top of that, if there's a mosquito in the room, I am definitely getting bitten. And I've told this to many people before, but if there's yeah. you know, a room full of people, I've heard people say like, oh, I get bitten all the time. I'm like, not more than me. And I am always the oh, no. never been in a room where someone got bit first before I did. And I'm always the first person who just kills it. And um, which is hard because some of these countries, you know, you're fighting them off like left and right. And I'm spraying myself as soon as I get yeah. out of the shower. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, I, I would love that skill uh, if, if I could <laughs> if I could adapt that if I had the or if I had a superpower where I just adopt people's superpowers or I could steal their superpowers, that would be that would be the one I'd go. <laughs> well, so According to your, your means, your means. Well, so that leads me to my next question, which would be, what were the most difficult countries to get to? Um, but also, I have question, which is, uh, what was the most expensive country to get to? But please, Seychelles? The most difficult country to get to was Seychelles, because at the time, although I was lucky in terms of global conflicts, everything sort of simmered down around the world. It was the height of the uh, Somalian pirate problem in the Indian Ocean. So 2009, I was traveling across the Atlantic Ocean on a cargo ship when we got the news that the Maersk Alabama from the movie Captain Phillips had been taken by pirates along with the mothership as well. Um, and so that whole area was kind of out of bounds for ships. So people said, well, um, you know, you can probably get up to the Seychelles from Madagascar. Uh, yeah, great. But then there was a yacht couple in the summer of 2019 at 2009 um who um paul and rachel chandler i think i might have to look that up uh they're a british yacht couple who were kidnapped by somali pirates and they were just off the coast of the seychelles so the seychelles was uh, a, a bit of a bete noir for me i had uh, i tried to get there from madagascar i tried to get there from from uh kenya and and um and um Tanzania and I tried to get there from I spent about two weeks in a place called Salala in Oman trying to get down to the Seychelles on a boat I was getting on these these cargo ships you know in the ports and they had like razor wire on the outside of them and it was just all you know, signs up saying keep keep an eye out for pirates I remember being shown a chart of the Indian Ocean on one of the boats I was on and it was like had all these markings on there of all the pirate sightings and pirate attacks and all this kind of stuff. So uh, there was a high-risk area for Somali piracy, and basically the ships could not take on passengers or supernumeraries, as we were called, uh, because it would invalidate their insurance. So that just made it very, very difficult to get to the Seychelles and the Maldives because they were also in the high-risk area. If, if you drew a line from Africa and it just touched the very northern tip of Madagascar, and then it went all the way across into the Indian Ocean until it got to the sort of bottom point of India and then went up. That was the high risk area for Somali piracy. So that made those countries very difficult. I had to sort of double back on myself. And then in the in the summer of 20, 2012, I had to wait for months and months and months. Like I got to Sri Lanka in, I don't know, May maybe or June. And it wasn't until I think September or October that I managed to get a ship uh, that was a cargo ship, uh, sorry, a cruise ship. It was a cruise ship. It was a Costa cruise ship that was going from Europe to Australia for the winter season and or the summer season down there, I guess, because it's upside down. And uh, I managed to, to, to get a ride on that. So if, if I hadn't, 
if I hadn't got on that boat, I might still be waiting in Sri Lanka to, yeah. <laughs> to, uh, to go to these places. Um, as far as the most expensive country, probably might be Saudi Arabia. At the time, there was no visa on arrival. You needed permission from a company in your own country and a company in um, Saudi Arabia. Um, I got to Kuwait from Iran. I wanted to get the ferry that went from Kuwait to Bahrain. Uh, unfortunately, by the time when I got there, I realized that that ferry had stopped a couple of years earlier. So I had to go into Saudi Arabia, which I'd already visited because one of the ships I was on going up the, the Red Sea actually stopped in Jeddah. So I'd actually got off the ship in Jeddah. So I was like, yeah, hey, I'm in Jeddah. Um, but uh, yeah, I had to wait a lot. I had to wait weeks and weeks and weeks for my permission to come through in order to travel in and out of Saudi Arabia because obviously I needed to sort of go in and out from Kuwait to Bahrain, Bahrain to Qatar, Qatar to UAE, every time I had to go in and out. And then eventually I, I managed to get to Eritrea from Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. So another trip to Saudi Arabia. And then I had a multiple entry visa. A lot of the a lot of this journey, I've got to say, was paperwork, was filling out forms again and again and again. Like my passport numbers were just imprinted in my mind. I could I could fill out those forms with my eyes closed by the end of it. And some of them had like mad rules, like just really random stuff. I always remember I was in Delhi, the capital of East Timor or Timor Leste, and uh, they, I want I needed to get a visa to go back into Indonesia. If you come into Indonesia from Malaysia or Singapore or the Brunei, it, that that's fine. But if you come in from East Timor, I guess because of the history of the the region, you need a visa. And I'm like, here you go. You know, and they're like, oh, no, that's that that picture's not, you can't use that. And I'm like, why? Because the background has to be red. And I'm like, what? <laughs> they're like, the background of the picture, you know, your little, your little passport photo needs to be red. So I spent the whole afternoon traveling around Dilly trying to find someone who could take a picture of me in front of a, a red piece of card. I'm going to find a pink one. So in the end, it was like, well, this do, it's pink. I, I thought I'd get like a felt tip pen and just color in the white background. <laughs> so yeah. It's the weirdest, the weirdest. Uh, anyway, but yeah, then, and then there were countries like Angola, uh, which make it very difficult for people to overland and travel into. Um, I, I had also problems with visas running out because they only last so long. And by the time I got to Nigeria, my Nigerian visa had run out, but they still let me in. My Cameroonian visa had run out, but they still let me in. Um, so yeah, there was there was a few sort of paperwork issues. Sure. Lots Did of, you have to lots of my passport. A lot of times you... You, a lot of times you hear about travelers going to some of these countries and having to pay bribes or getting hassled by, by the police. Yeah. Did you ever <laughs> have to do that at all in any of these uh, countries? Uh, not unless I wanted to. Let, let's talk about bribes for a moment. Bribes, I just saw them as hurry up taxes. So if you're prepared to sit there and wait for six hours to cross the border, it doesn't cost you anything. If you've got the time and the patience to do that, it's not going to cost you anything. If you want to cross the border right now, it's going to be $50. So it, it, it just depended on what my schedule was like that, you know, going to the next country, the next country. Um, so it, it, I didn't really um, have a problem with that so much. I don't think I didn't have to pay a bribe getting into Nigeria. I didn't pay any bribes at all in Nigeria, which is funny. Um, Cameroon, I found uh, the police in Cameroon were quite rude and they, they just wanted money off me quite a, quite a few times. And it was literally, we're going to sit here until you give us money. You know, they'll take me to a police station and I'd, I'd have to sit there. And then it was just a waiting game. 
Uh, a few times I was lucky. I was lucky because um, when I went into Guinea, uh, I crossed over the border and um, they, they wanted to arrest me for having a camera. Like I hadn't done anything. They just wanted me to arrest me for having a camera. And um, they, the, the guy looked at my passport and it said that, you know, place of birth, Liverpool. And he was a big fan of Liverpool Football Club. And uh, he started just talking to me about the football. So I was like, yeah, cool, football. And he let me go. So yeah, a bit, bit of luck and a bit of patience. But one thing I did learn from my experience in Congo when I lost my rag with the police because the, I, I was just getting a bit fed up of being treated the way I was being treated. Um, don't lose your rag. Just keep smiling. Just keep a, a positive mental attitude. And yeah. that stood me in good stead for the rest of the journey. I didn't have any more problems with the authorities for the rest of the journey because I just kept on laughing and being cheerful and just going along with it. If uh, if if they want to go along with it, do you know what I mean? Um, if you if you just if you just go along with it, then generally speaking, uh, they'll they'll either think you're funny and let you go, or they'll get bored and let you go because they can't force you to give you money. And and generally speaking, I didn't have that much money to give them. I always made sure that I was like, this is all the money I have, and I'd have like a hundred dollar bill in my shoe or something just in case. But this is all the money I have, and they're like, okay, you know, it's worth like two two dollars fifty or something. You know, I, I always do the same thing. Whenever I whenever I have like, take money out of the ATM, I always try to put money into each sock, you know, so I yeah. spread it out in case I get mugged because if somebody's going to mug you, they're going to take whatever's in your pockets. You know, they want to take something. Yeah. But I always, you know, try to have a little bit of amount. So in Cameroon, did you end up paying that, uh, paying a, a bribe or no? Yeah, there's a few times when it was just like, we, we, had, we had a bus full of people and they wouldn't let the bus go until yes. I paid the bribe. And it's like they, you know, these people trying to get home, trying to get to work. You know, there's this idiot European sitting there going, "Oh, everyone's going to stay here until you know, yeah. until until the sun goes down." I'm prepared to wait. No, you can't really do that. So in those situations, I was a bit like, "Well, it's not for me. It's for the pe other people on the bus." Sure. There you go. Here you go. But I mean, look, and 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 to give some credit to Guinness, they took this on board as well. They knew that sort of this sort of thing would happen on the road so it wasn't like you're not allowed to pay a bribe would have made it impossible to do this journey in certain countries yeah. because it's just the way it is yeah. well so i want to ask you in terms of doing this trip for so such long of a period i recently took a two-month trip through asia and i needed a few weeks back in the states to regroup like i needed to rest i needed to just go to the grocery store go to the gym and for you, who is undergoing a four-year journey, what turned out to be a four-year journey, did, didn't you feel exhausted? Like, what would you do to like kind of like regroup and, and try to get refreshed so that you can keep going on? Were there times where you wanted to quit? Um, there's not really a time when I wanted to quit. There was a time when I wanted someone else to take the reins. So, just to explain, like the 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 journey, I got to 184 countries in the first two years. So by the end of the second year, I was in Papua New Guinea, and I've been to 184 countries. And at that point, it was just before Christmas, and I got news that my sister had been diagnosed with cancer. And we didn't know what it was going to be, how yeah. aggressive it was going to be. We didn't know if you know if if I continued my journey, if she'll still be with us by the time I finished the journey. So what I did, I made an executive decision uh to fly to australia where my then girlfriend lived so that we could find out you know how bad it was and if necessary it would be a lot easier for me to fly back home from australia than it would be 
from Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, wherever, or even if it was just at sea <laughs> for a couple of days. Um, so uh, in the end, uh, we found out that yeah, that it was it was it was terminal. So um, I flew back to the UK. Yeah. I was with my sister for the last few weeks of her life, and she said to me, "Please don't stop the journey because of me." And I promised her that I wouldn't. So there was no way that I was going to not do it. And also, it wasn't just Nikki, my sister. It was also all the people who had helped me along the way. I told them I was going to go to every country in the world without flying. And then to, I, I felt like I'd be letting them all down if I didn't finish it, didn't finish the journey. But um, I flew back to Australia and it did take me several months to sort of get back on the horse. I wanted someone else to take control of the journey and I'll just do it. Do you know what I mean? Because it wasn't the actual physical act of traveling that was exhausting for me. It was all the bloody paperwork. It was organizing things. It was making phone calls and begging to get on boats and doing all this kind of stuff. Wheeling and dealing your way around the world. I, I found that part of it quite exhausting. So I did have some months off. And also I'll add, um, when I was talking to Guinness about you know, the rules, they made made it clear that in a case of emergency or you know whatever i could fly back to my home country or where wherever i needed to go because one of the things that we talked about uh back in 2008 i think when we were discussing this uh is what if someone's trying to break my record because all, all guinness world records have to be breakable you can't say i'm the uh the only person to do this uh or the first person to do this because uh that's not a breakable record do you know what I mean? So you won't get in the Guinness Book of Records for being the first to do something now. I mean, you would be if it was landing on Mars or something, but uh, as far as sort of feats of endurance, et cetera, is concerned, they won't have it. So we had this agreement. And the thing is, I said, well, what if uh, someone who's trying to follow my record, or even me, gets into some medical difficulties? I was thinking particularly a road accident because I've seen how people drive around the world. It's not great. Uh, it's not great in my own country, never mind anywhere else. And I just imagine that if I'm in some r rural, remote part of Colombia, I might be airlifted out of that situation. And what if the, am I, am I supposed to go, no, don't put me in the air ambulance. I can't fly. Um, yeah. And also that whole thing of like not going home if one of my family members falls ill, which is what happened. Um, so they, they were cool about it. They said, look, if, if as long as you go back to the exact point that you left off and don't fly as part of the journey, then that's allowed. In the same way that I could drive if I wanted to. So I, I left off from WeWAC in Papua New Guinea, um, and that's when I went back to in September of 2011 when I continued the journey. Um, and uh, when I was in New Zealand, my then-girlfriend flew over from Australia to be with me for two weeks because we had... I knew I had a, a boat booked to get back to Australia as part of the journey, but we had two weeks in New Zealand. So we hired a car and we drove around New Zealand. It wasn't part of the journey. It was like, right, you know, stop the clock. No, actually, no, the clock didn't stop. It was just like, put your flag down on the ground. As long as I come back to this exact point, then I can continue the journey from there. So uh, I suppose I could have hitchhiked. At that point, I didn't. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean, I hitchhiked on ships, on boats. On, on sailing boats and things like that because there's no other way of getting between these countries. So I, I, the same way that you could look at these rules that Guinness put on there and say that was a bit onerous for them to do that. In another way, they, they are quite sort of easygoing. They're not crazy strict about it, especially when you're doing something as, as big a journey as this, a, a bigger sort of world record attempt as, as this was. So, I you know, I, that gave me my... my uh, 
gap in my journey, if you like. But at the same time, there was a part of me that just wanted to get back on the road as soon as possible and finish the journey. At that point, I only had 16 countries left to visit. Um, 17 later on that year because South Sudan became a country uh, in the summer of 2017. Um, uh, 20, 20, 2011, the summer of 2011. Um, and uh, all this time travel, it scrambles my brain. Like Sam Beckett in Quantum Leap. Um, but uh, yeah, so they they were pretty good about it. I got my rest, I got my recuperation, but the whole time I just I just wanted to be back out there. I, yeah. I, I don't know, I'm, I'm hyperactive. I, I love mm. this stuff. It, 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 honestly, left to my own devices, I'd just travel for the rest of my life. I really would. I'm not yeah. just saying that to be show well, off. It's just something I really enjoy doing, and I'm yeah. good at it. And there's not many things in life that I really enjoy doing that I'm good at. <laughs> uh, but also in 2016, uh, an awful thing happened in America, um, which was um, not just that Trump got elected. It was also that I got banned from America. <laughs> I have a lifelong uh esther ban esther ban uh spanish for steven uh the the electronic travel authorization uh that they give out to travelers back in the day you used to have a little bit of paper that you'll fill out on the plane as you came into america now they've got rid of that and you have to go online and you've got to list all the countries you've been to in the last five years so you're sitting there and it's a drop down box for each of them you can't just you can't just copy and paste the list <laughs> so three <laughs> hours later and you yeah. gotta pay for it it's a visa waiver. It's not a visa, but you've got to pay for it. And it takes ages to fill out the forms. And they changed the rules. So I got the first one when I was in Guam in the in the Pacific Ocean in 2012. And then I have to get another one because in the last two years in 2014 uh, when I was going to Ginger Island. And then I got a, another one in 2016 when I was coming back from Panama. I tried to get one and it was denied because they changed the rules between those two Esters. And the new rule said that you couldn't have gone to Iraq, Iran, Syria or Sudan in the last five years. I hadn't been to the other three, but I had been to Sudan on the way back from South Sudan to the UK. So I was denied just as I was getting to the airport, by the way. Normally it comes through straight away. It took a week to come through. I was like, I don't know what to do. I was on my way to the airport and yeah, I came up on my phone that it had been denied. It's a link. You press on the link and it came up like a website. And I was just like, oh my God, I've got to get home. You know, I was flying home and um so i had to get another flight it cost me hundreds of dollars to change flights and i had to get one that goes via europe goes via um like i don't know the netherlands and um yeah and then a few months later after that i thought i, I i've got a book out called man of the world by graham hughes that's me and uh, which is well worth reading and my publisher is based in ohio in america and i wanted to meet up with him before publication obviously and I looked it up online. It said you don't need an Esther to visit America if you're coming overland from Mexico or from Canada and you're from a European country or wherever. And so I thought, great, I'll go from um, Canada. So I flew from Panama to Canada, to Toronto, met my publisher at Niagara Falls. It was very romantic. And we crossed over the Rainbow Bridge into the land of the free. And I was detained for about four hours. They scanned my eyes. They wanted to know the pattern to get onto my phone, to check on my social media. They wanted to take my fingerprints, and they did. And, uh, yeah, I was told I've got a, I'm banned for life now. I have to get a visa. Even if I'm changing planes, I've got to get a visa to go to America, which breaks my heart because one of my next journeys I wanted to do was every state in America without flying. Can't do that now. Would you ever do this journey again? Yes, absolutely. Yep. In a second. I'll do it. I, honestly. 
I mean, yeah. obviously, there's some practical problems at the moment. Good luck getting into Yemen. Good luck yeah. getting into Ukraine or Russia. Um, but aside from that, um, yeah, if, if, if the opportunity arose, I'd love to do it again. Okay. Uh, next. But, 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 can I just say, I'd like mm. to take someone with me. So I'm not doing it on my own. I'd like to take my partner, Catherine. <laughs> Let me ask, is there another... Guinness World Record that you've thought about that maybe you want to pursue? Well, back when I was doing the Odyssey Expedition, um, I wanted to do every state in America without flying in the least amount of time, um, which I can't really do now. In 2017, I tried to set the record for every country in Europe without flying in the least amount of time. Now, I applied to Guinness to, for this, um, but I only had a bit of a short window to actually do it. And look, Guinness, there was a whole John Oliver episode on last week tonight where he talked about Guinness being a little bit of a racket because if you pay for stuff, then they'll pay a bit more attention to you. If you don't pay for it, and I've never paid for it, it takes ages. It took them a year to go through all my, over a year to go through all my data to give me the Guinness World Record. I didn't actually get it until 2014, over a year after I finished the journey. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, the, 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 I'd sent them the information. I've got an account with them so they know that I've set records before. Um, and, um, uh, they, 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 uh, I, I wrote out, you know, I'm going to be keeping to the same rules that I had on the Odyssey expedition, which you've already agreed to. So hopefully this is all right. I did it. I did it about 19 days, I think from Iceland to Cyprus and <laughs> I sent them all my information and they went, oh yeah, the thing is Graham, uh, we go by the UN definition of Europe and that doesn't include Cyprus. And I'm like, that was the hardest country to get to. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, apparently Cyprus is part of Asia. News to Cyprus, which is not only in the Eurovision Song Contest, it's also in the EU. So, all right. Um, maybe geographically it is part of Asia, but politically it's part of, of Europe. Well, at least half of it is. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so uh, there was that. So I still want to do that again. Mm -hmm. I might have to wait till things settle down with Ukraine and, and Russia, obviously. And I, I had more ambitious stuff to do as well. I mean, back in 2000 and... Uh, nine or ten i was seriously given consideration to being the first person to set the record for the journey walking i think someone's done it cycling since but i don't know if anyone's done this walking yet from the lowest place on earth the dead sea to the highest place on earth top of everest i think that would be one hell of a challenge but mm. in order to do that mm. i'd have to have a lot more money than i do at the moment because it costs a mm. lot of money to go up through Everest. Things will have to thaw out with Iran because obviously I'll be able to walk through Iran and at the moment as a British citizen, I was lucky when I was in Iran, I didn't need to have a chaperone but now if you go to Iran, you need someone to make sure that you don't steal any antiquities or something. You have to be part of a tour. I think you have to be part of a tour. So getting around that and being able to stay in Iran long enough to walk across the entire country uh, would be a bit difficult and then you, obviously you've got to get through Pakistan as well which would be difficult uh, for political reasons um, so yeah I mean that that's that's a record that I think that would be absolutely amazing if someone actually did that I don't think I'm going to be the person to do it but if someone wants to do it I don't think that anyone set that record although someone did uh, did it on a bike not to the top of Everest obviously because that would be a bit difficult mm -hmm. So okay well, so what's the future hold for you then are are you always are you always thinking about these world records that you possibly could be the first to do. Uh, is there something in the future yeah. for you? <laughs> the easiest ones, the easiest ones. Um, I want to travel more. I, I want to travel more. Um, 
a big thing for me at the moment in you know, I'm in my 40s now. I would like, uh, first of all, I'd like someone to invest in Ginger Island and set it up as an eco-retreat. I think that would be absolutely amazing if anyone's watching this. And that 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 sounds like something they would like to do. We could set it up as something where we blog it. We put it on the we put it on Instagram. We show people the journey. We do TikTok videos about how we make things on the island. And I think that would be quite successful. But you need that cash injection in order to get started with that. Locally at home, I want things to get better in my country at the moment. I want the current government out and I've set up Labour Social, which is a YouTube channel dedicated to basically, first of all, uh, promoting the Labour Party in the UK, which is the British version of the Democrats, I guess, but also holding them to account once they're in office, because I don't want them to think, oh, yeah, we can do whatever we like now. We want them to keep to their promises. Uh, so sort of the political stuff. Also, the environmental stuff, that's what I want to concentrate on in the next few years. And then, I don't know, when, when my stepdaughters are old enough, hit the road again. Go see some new places. Somewhere I've never been. Never been to Greenland. Never been to Antarctica. Let's leave off. Do you have anything that you want to say to the travelers out there? Any words of wisdom? <laughs> Keep traveling. Enjoy the journey. There's a great quote from the video game Grim Fandango by LucasArts that came out in 1997, I think. And it's just my favorite line from any kind of media. I think it blows any kind of line from a, a film out the water. And it's a say, like creed that I like to live by. And um, the, they've got, the characters have got on this train. It's going to go into heaven, like from the world or whatever it is. And, and she says, are you, you know, are you scared of what, 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 what lays ahead? And he says, it's one thing I've learned over the last few years is, uh, you know, no one knows what's waiting at the end of the line. So you might as well enjoy the trip. That's beautiful. <laughs> It's the best yeah. philosophy ever. Enjoy sure. yourself when you're traveling. Enjoy it. And, and also travel in a way that you enjoy. If you don't like flying, don't fly. Take the time out to go slow. Take the train. Take the, take the bus. Maybe not the Greyhound bus, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> well, people can find out more about you from the Odyssey Expedition, the Odyssey Expedition.com. Yeah. I've been on the site. It's fascinating. There's so many stories on there. And, of course, your book, Man of the World. It's yeah. available for more bad booksellers like yeah. Amazon. And there's also an audio book if you like my um, Liverpool twang. Our, our, our accent is called Scouse. So if you like my Scouse accent, then uh, head over to Audible and you can download my book for free if you're new on That's there or something. You have a Wikipedia page too if you want to unpack viewpoint I... of, of everything you've done. Uh, <laughs> It is fascinating, Graham. Thank you very much. I know that I, I'm going with the American version of Graham. I'm just it's so used to it. Graham, Graham. But uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Remember, you can find more information about today's interview subject at PickMyAdventure.com and discover more interviews. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next time on Pick My Adventure. I'm your host, Kevin Liu. You can find out more about me on Instagram at PickMyAdventureTraveler where I let you pick my destinations and travel activities through polls.